Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abi Dawji and this is the Big Picture broadcasting simultaneously on Radio Islam and Radio Al Ansar. Alan Wasalan. And how's it? All you wonderful people out there. All you faithful listeners of my program. <laughs> Mainly because you got nothing else to do, hey? Who said that's right? Sir. Let me inform you that people listening to this program have developed their insights and intellect, intellectual acumen that propel them into great heights of economic and political leadership. Thousands have benefited and reached high office. Let me give you some examples. There is, uh, uh, let's see. Yes, of course. Uh, and, and, and how can I forget? If I remember correctly, the, 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 the one that comes to mind is, wait, wait hold on, hold on. Uh, what's his name? Uh, okay, okay. Maybe I'll get, I'll get back to that a bit later, okay. For now, I want to begin with a subject that has completely dominated and flooded social media. Dr. Zuleika Mayat, known to everyone as Auntie Zuleika. Yes, she passed away yesterday, and tributes have been pouring in, eloquent words that I cannot match. But one thing is clear, this wonderful lady touched and inspired many hearts. A thoroughly humble human being who was ready with a warm smile and a kind word. We should not mourn the passing away of Auntie Zuleika, but celebrate her life. And what a full life in the service of humanity. We should thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for sparing us this wonderful lady for 97 years on this earth. Yes, we should celebrate her life. And may I say that the best way that I can describe Auntie Zuleika is that she was truly an Indian delight. May Allah grant her Jannatul Firdos. Okay, let's move on now to more temporal and mundane matters. This story is about our local boyki from Pretoria who made it big, very big. <laughs> I'm referring to Elon Musk. Say, man, poor fellow is going through a very bad patch. From 2018, he has been in court fighting to get his pay packet. And just this week, the court said, no, you're not entitled to your pay package. That's so cruel, eh? I wonder how he's going to pay his rent and put food on the table. So sad, so sad. I'm thinking of starting a collection for him. We need to stand by our fellow South Africans, say. So, what was it that the court rejected? His pay packet was supposed to be just uh, only $56 billion. <laughs> that, in rands, works out to a measly one trillion one hundred and twenty billion rands. Shame. 
what can you do with such a small amount? I, I mean, really, really. Eh? And they refused him that. <laughs> the world is so unfair. Actually, um, it's his commission awarded to him by the shareholders of his Tesla company. So, listeners, I'll be putting up my account details on WhatsApp for your donations to help our poor homeboy. Eh? Be generous, okay? And I just heard that this ruling by the court has hurt him very badly. He has become poorer, according to Forbes magazine, which uh, rates all the Lani's. Our Elon has dropped one spot down, one notch down, because he was refused the $56 billion. He is now down to being the second richest man in the world. Ah, shame, man. <laughs> I want to burst out crying, Abibi. <laughs> okay, still on the local scene, let me read to you this regarding the 2021 July riots. 2021 July riots. I'm going to read it slowly so that you can digest it properly. A 252-page report by the South African Human Rights Commission into the July 2021 unrest released on Monday has concluded that the acts of vandalism and destruction were orchestrated by actors who were well-resourced. Their identity, however, remains mysterious. <laughs> My dear listeners, when I read that, I said very loudly, Exabot, give me a break, okay? The commission said, it's a human rights commission, said that the whole thing was orchestrated. It said that, orchestrated, meaning it was well planned to unfold systematically right across the region, which means that there was a network of people involved. And secondly, the whole Tamasha, according to the commission, was well-resourced, meaning money and material were supplied. And that's a huge project. And yet this commission did not find any clue, no idea who was involved. This, Habibi, in my view, is taking Mamparanas to new heights. I wonder how... Um, how the whole the whole bank should the whole tamasha cost hmm. must be a few millions ah well we know how to spend tax uh, taxpayers money like water here in south africa how much did zondo cost huh do you know <laughs> one billion rands yes one billion rands and how many people are in trunk for corruption how many all together now? <laughs> when I was Googling earlier to find out what this uh, commission investigating the July riots cost, um, I was Googling it. Uh, I came across a brilliant article by our political analyst Imran, ba Imran Bakas, an article that he has just written, just hot off the press. Here's how he describes the report. He says, at times it feels like it was pulled together by an undergraduate student with chunks of text being dumped into a document rather, 
than any serious analysis being developed. At times it states the obvious, and at other times it ignores the obvious. Some of the text dumped into the report has no apparent relevance of any sort to the events of July 2021. The quality of the report is very poor. No university professor would accept work this shoddy from a proposed graduate student. It's claimed that there is no evidence linking the jailing of Jacob Zuma to the events of July 2021 is simply ludicrous. Shamefully, a news report headlined, report reveals 2021 unrest was not related to Zuma's incarceration, repeats this patently ridiculous claims as if it were fact. <laughs> Dear listeners, I was, when I was preparing for this program, going to say the same thing, that the report was a load of cow menu. I can't use the word bull, etc. Anyway, Imran said it perfectly well. You can access his brilliant article on the News24 website. Let me add that my feeling is that the Human Rights Commission decided not to point the finger at uh, Zuma's supporters or who orchestrated the whole thing because that would be huge. They pointed it to Zuma's crowd. That would be huge, very big. It would mean that action would need it would need to be taken against those who are accused of instigating the riots and the looting. Because we are talking about 50 million rands worth of damage to the economy. And this would mean an insurrection. That's how you would view it and against the state. And perhaps a charge of treason <clears throat> would have to be brought against the perpetrators. Very serious indeed. So my view is that the Human Rights Commission decided not to grasp the nettle, or should I say this hot potato, and decided to cop out, just say, uh, we don't know who did it, and khalas, the book is closed. The book is closed. Valiwe. <laughs> ah, man, the whole thing was just one big coincidence that uh, just a day after Zuma was incarcerated, people came out and started looting and rioting. No link at all there, Habibi. It all happened by chance. The Grand Bakhtas does an excellent analysis in his article wherein he demonstrates clearly the possible perpetrators of the mayhem. Read it online, Motabaji. Okay. <clears throat> now, you know... What really worried me, actually made me very angry indeed, is that somehow the focus turned to the events in Phoenix. There was a whole program on SAFM on that, the, uh, that the, about what Indians did to blacks in Phoenix. And callers after callers to the program extended it to a discussion on how bad Indians are. The program was hate-filled and therefore very dangerous as you can imagine. I tried very hard to call into the program to set the context straight, but didn't get through. And if you remember, even just 
after the July riots, there were lots of radio discussions about Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. Anyway, let me tell you what I was going to say. Let me look at the time. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you what I was going to say and may still do so in the coming week on SAFM. Um, I was going to say that there was a highly toxic atmosphere of fear and insecurity when the riots and looting broke out. And just as the looting started, many co uh, co uh, communities erected barriers at the entrances of the re residential areas. In Isapingo, where I live, where I used to live, my neighbor Tabiso and other black residents, together with Indians, stood at the barricades and watched as mobs with sticks and pangas marched to the main street in Isapingo and burned almost all the shops. And now to Phoenix. Evidence by witnesses at the uh, commission revealed that a small group of highly armed guys, gung-ho, trigger-happy individuals, manned the barricades. They were identified as drug lords, owners of security companies, and a motley crowd of hooligans, openly racist, ready to deal with any black people in the, in the most extreme way. Hence, the assaults and deaths that ensued. The entire so-called Indian community there in Phoenix and around the country were totally um, horrified at the behavior of these thugs. But the impression out there was that the entire Phoenix community endorsed, supported the actions of these hooligans. So what was done immediately to show that all Indians had not supported the thugs? Well, let me just say very briefly, there was one black lady who had a car burnt and the community collected money and bought her a car. Many more examples to show that there were moves to mend fences. Leaders from churches, civic organizations, NGOs and political parties formed a peace and development committee to heal community rifts. Leaders from all sides formed a 15-member organization called PINK. PINK meaning Phoenix, Inanda, Tazuma and Kormashu to condemn the actions of these thugs and try to calm down the situation. But no, instead of focusing on why the whole thing started, all the rioting and looting and, and all of that, the spotlight shifted on the killings in Phoenix and the wider generalization of Indians as very, very bad people. Well, that was more or less what I was going to say on SAFM. And I may even, as I said, do so. Okay, let me move on. <coughs> a few days ago, I saw a short clip it was from the British TV Sky News. A lady was being interviewed about the issue of uh, uh, Gaza and also about the uh, involvement of the Houthis, etc. I was really amazed and, may I say, uh, also thoroughly amused at the way the lady dealt with the host of the show. She was brilliant, this lady. Uh, and the word that comes to mind is unflappable. Very calmly and with a smile, she hid the interviewer's the, inter, the, the, the hosts who were asking very silly questions, she hit them for six, meaning she gave them some lucker claps. <laughs> the video went viral here, and uh, you may have seen it. And so I found out the lady's name, uh, Miriam Francois. She's half uh, Irish and half French, and she's living in London. I emailed her asking for an interview, and she agreed. And then I Googled her name to find out exactly who she is. I was really astounded to learn how accomplished she is, and may I add, quite an activist too. Here's just a very short 
part of her accomplishments. I, uh, and you can also Google her name to find out more about her. Um, it says Miriam Francois, a, Br a British journalist and filmmaker. Her work has appeared on the BBC, Channel 4, and Al Jazeera. Uh, Francois holds an MA from Georgetown University, United States, and BA from Cambridge University, UK. She completed her PhD at Oxford University, focusing on Islamic movements in Morocco in 2017. In 2017, uh, Francois uh, presented the truth about Muslim marriage, uh, a documentary on Channel 4, which was nominated for Best Investigative documentary at the Asian Media Awards in 2018. Francois gave guest lectures at Harvard University in 2014, University of Birmingham, uh, Luther College in, uh, in Iowa, and presented an annual guest lecture at Kingston University in England. In 2003, at the age of 21, Francois accepted Islam and became a Muslim after graduating from Cambridge. At the time, she was skepti a skeptical Roman Catholic. She rejects the use of the words convert and revert as exclusionary, describing herself as just a Muslim, just Muslim. And you will be blown away by what she has achieved through her life. Absolutely amazing. Uh, so, listeners, I thought that uh, in the interview with her shortly, I will... I will change the whole discourse. Um, it makes no real sense to ask her about what she thinks about the situation in Gaza or what's the world's reaction, especially America and so on. You've heard all that many times and heard uh, uh, analysts uh, and discussion conversations on Al Jazeera and, and on radio stations here and so on. So I thought I'd change that. So today I decided to question her as if I'm an Israeli or a local Zionist and pose questions to her, as was put by the uh, uh, Israeli defense team at the ICJ, you know, the, the reasons for defending Israel. You are, of course, uh, aware of uh, their standpoint, you know, what they've been saying all along about Gaza and so on, the Israelis. So I will put those points to her, and her answers will therefore... Uh, equipped you, dear listeners, to respond to the propaganda of Israel and its supporters. You learn something from her answers, inshallah. So let's move on with the interview. And I believe we have our guest on the line from London. Dr. Miriam Francois, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Big Picture program. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you very much for agreeing to do the interview. I have already told the listeners about you very briefly because if I read out your mile-long, very impressive CV, it would take up the whole program. Oh, bless you. Uh, yes, I'm <laughs> sure you, what you said so far is amazing. <laughs> anyway, welcome and let's get into it and allow me to spice up the show. I uh, decided to play the devil's advocate, I think oh. the equivalent would be Shaitan's lawyer. But, yes. <laughs> but better still, I will be a Pierce Morgan, who I suppose could be equated to the devil by many people. 
Oh, wow, dear God. Well, interestingly, <laughs> Piers Morgan is not a show I would voluntarily uh, choose to be on. So uh, let's see how this one goes. Right, so here we go. So, do you condemn what Hamas did on October 7th? Beheading babies, uh, the rapes, the killings, etc. Do you condemn them? Oh, God. This is really where, where we're going with this. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's so much to unpick in the question. I mean, obviously, we the, the sort of beheaded babies. We know that, that was debunked, although children were killed. Um, on that day in a tragedy. Um, I, I personally condemn violence. I am someone who believes that violence is mo more often than not a reflection of a sort of hyper-patriarchal culture um, that, you know, is more interested in uh, sort of ego-driven confrontation than what I think both my faith and my identity as a woman makes me lean towards, which is dialogue, discussion, compromise, and the prioritizing of, 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 of the preservation of life and peace. Right, let me jump in there and ask you this. Does Israel not have a right to defend itself? Well, under international law, no, because it's not occupying power. So occupying powers in that sense, don't have a right to defend themselves from the occupied peoples. I mean, their right is actually to provide safety, security, um, and all the necessary provisions for life for that population. Obviously, from the minute that, that the occupying power not only fails to do that, but is engaged in widespread persecution of uh, that population, it is likely to create uh, more than resentment, resentment, anger. Um, and if that resentment and anger has no um, conduit for its vocalization, it may even lead to violence. And I think that's, that's what we have seen happen. Um, I think obviously Isra Israelis have a right to live in peace, just as Palestinians have a right to live in peace. Um, it's just unfortunate that, like, you sort of set that question up as Shaitan's lawyer, as you said. Um, there seems to so often be a focus on the rights um, of one population over another, which to me is a reflection of the wider sort of white supremacy that this entire discussion is imbibed in. You know, this notion that sort of Israelis who look and sound like us, and that's because often they literally are us. They are often uh, Europeans or Westerners who have emigrated to that land. Um, but, uh, and that somehow, you know, uh, Palestinians as Arabs, um, albeit Christian and Muslim ones, um, do not get afforded the same level of humanity. Um, and, and that's reflected in how we discuss this conflict. That's very apparent. But if Hamas had released the hostages on October 8th, the whole thing would have been over. Oh, well, okay. So um, what would have been over <laughs> exactly? Because the occupation has been going on for 75 years. Um, October the 6th was still an occupation. On October the 6th, there was still a blockade on Gaza, which had been going on for 17 years which had completely strangled the strip which people had been peacefully protesting 
at, uh, you know, the gates, uh, you know, for, for months on end, there'd been peaceful protests against this blockade, uh, which were then met by uh, gunfire. You know, you can you can look these events up. You know, the the, the protests, the peace protests that were happening to try and uh, break the blockade were led to um, you know dozens of people being killed. So you know, you I don't again. It's, it's as with so much in this, these questions often betray uh, a, a sort of very myopic understanding of history. Um, I think hostages should be released, including the over 6,000 people in Israeli prisons being detained without access to a lawyer or due diligence in military tribunals, including children. But hang on, Hamas is using civilians as human shields, uh, firing from schools and hospitals and mosques. What do you make of that? Okay. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen, unfortunately, numerous examples of um, Israeli operatives using even children as human shields. Um, these are well documented by human rights organizations, including Israeli ones like B'Tselem and Human Rights Watch. Um, I don't think anyone should be using human shields, to be honest with you. Um, I also think that there are very clear rules in combat when it comes to the use of what we call places of, uh, you know, red lines. So this includes schools, hospitals, and of course, journalists, people who are trying to um, work in these conditions um, and who should not be targets. And we've seen, of course, in this particular conflict that it's been one in which we've seen the highest number of healthcare workers, over um, 600 healthcare workers killed, uh, people just trying to assist other people who are horrifically injured. We've seen um, you know, an assault on a hospital in Janine, which was in the West Bank, not even in Gaza, a military operation by the IDF in which they shot a paralyzed um, teenage boy, you know, in the head uh, as part of an, an operation there. These are, these are not acceptable forms of response to whatever it is that you're facing as a nation. There's forms of due process. People have human rights. You cannot just go in and execute people uh, this is not uh, a Hollywood movie. This is real life. These are real people, um, and the world is watching. So, yeah. Your yes, but opinion. again, yeah, yeah, but again, Israel is very careful not to target civilians. It uh, obeys the rules of war and international law. It is the most moral army in the world, and the whole world recognizes this. Wow. Yes, indeed. If, if by the whole world, you mean the Hasbara. Um, I think, obviously, the idea that Israel has been very careful in targeting um, militants has been sort of um, really undermined by the reality of their own figures. You know, recently uh, there was a statement put out by uh, the, the military itself when they were asked how many Hamas operatives had actually been killed. Um, and, you know, amongst the sort of higher legions, I think the figure was about 80. So um, as somebody pointed out, the IDF has managed to kill more journalists and significantly more health workers than it has uh, Hamas operatives, which I think even that, that's before we even get to the tens of thousands of civilians that have been killed, the over 10,000 orphans, the uh, it's actually 33,000 children who have lost one or both parents. Uh, in this conflict, 10,000 children who've been killed um, of, you know, 
how many dozens, tens of thousands, we will know, we, well, we, we don't know and we won't know for a while because so many are still under the rubble. But the idea that this is a targeted um, operation based on the uh, annihilation of not just civilians, but also civilian infrastructure, um, schools, hospitals, residential buildings, and most recently, of course, a Belgian um, NGO that, uh, as well as an English, a British NGO, both of which have been uh, flagged to uh, the Israeli authorities. I think you have to remember that Israel um, has access, uh, thanks to the United States, which is its main provider of military uh, support, and of course Israel is the main recipient of US aid um, of any country in the world, um, to some of the most sophisticated weapons, the most um, precise weapons, which of course we did also hear the Americans sort of urging them to make good use of. Um, and of course we've seen that you can make good use of them. You can go into Lebanon and, um, uh, you know, kill uh, a Hamas leader, you know, specifically in his apartment on his floor. We've seen other um, evidence of sort of targeted attacks like that uh, by Israel. So, you know, I think that unfortunately the evidence of what we're seeing belies the idea that this is a targeted attack. I think it's more commensurate with what many of us feared from the start, which is that this is um, a, a kind of a continuation of a, a policy of ethnic cleansing that has been at the heart of, unfortunately, the Israeli modus operandi since its creation, which has led to so many conflicts with the international community and international law. Israel is the country that's had the most UN resolutions passed against it. And is also the country that's in the violation of the most number of UN resolutions. So, you know, it's not unusual what we're seeing if you understand the history. I think what's unusual is that so few journalists seem to understand the history well enough to be able to pose questions that truly reflect the reality of what's happening on the ground rather than uh, being a sort of mouthpiece for, uh, unfortunately, Israeli propaganda. But then again, again, Hamas could have made Gaza into a Dubai or a Singapore, but it chose to fire thousands of rockets at Israel and use donor money to build tunnels. Yeah, so I think this, again, is part of the mythology around how Gaza operates. So um, Hamas, so first of all, Hamas has not been elected since 2006, so the Gazan people have not had any say in who runs Gaza for a very long time. Um, in addition to that, we do have plenty of evidence of corruption, of misuse of funds. You know, I, I personally think that that's well, that is well documented. Um, of course, what we do know, of course, is that Hamas has been supported by Israel. It was, um, you know, Israel's, uh, particularly Netanyahu's um, partner of choice. Uh, because, of course, having opposite um, a sort of extremist, uh, quote-unquote, organization as far as the international community was concerned was a perfect way to stall any peace process negotiations or discussions. So um, it was very handy for Israel to continue to have Hamas in power to justify um, a sort of status quo that suits them. Um, with that said, I think for those who are not aware, um, neither Hamas nor the PA really control anything to do with the Palestinian territories. That's why under international law they are considered an occupied people. Israel controls all entry and exit points, all entry and exit points of people, of goods, of funds, 
Um, even water, Palestinians don't even control their own water. There's actually a, a clause that forbids Palestinians from even collecting rainwater, because rainwater itself, don't you believe it belongs to God, belongs to Israel. So um, I don't think that there's any real plausibility to the notion that um, Hamas could have turned uh, Gaza into uh, Dubai, nor, nor should they necessarily want to turn it into Dubai. Um, Gaza should be whatever Palestinians choose it to be, but they don't currently have a leadership that reflects them, nor do they have the autonomy to be able to govern their own lives or their own territories. And until we can see what they want to do, um, anything else really, I think, is sort of either speculation or um, sort of deliberate misrepresentation. And what do you say to the fact that uh, this is described as the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust? Um, I, I mean, I, I think that probably is, is accurate. You know, um, they on obviously on the seventh of October, they Israelis lost a thousand two hundred of their citizens. That is a significant number of people. Um, we've obviously seen, uh, you know, people push back and say, well, you know, the civilians were much. You know, I'm. I, I said at the outset of this interview, you know, I really, really dislike violence. I find violence to be, uh, you know, we say violence is a last resort, but I think we're nowhere near a last resort in how we are sort of uh, currently very militaristically obsessed societies. You know, here we've been engaged in a sort of uh, front in, in, in Ukraine against Russia. We are opening up fronts, you know, the U.S. and Taiwan, sort of, you know, facing off with China and now in Iran and, you know, attacks against uh, Iranian targets. Enough, enough with this. This is ridiculous. All human lives are sacred. I can't fathom that we are sitting around trying to justify how we can kill more people. I just don't, I'm just not really interested in that conversation. I'm really very interested in the conversation around the fact that we have seen you know, a growing number of Israelis and Palestinians, you know, coming out into the streets together saying, we don't want this. I'm very interested in the families of hostages who from the start of this came out and said, not in our name, you will not, you know, we lost family members on the 7th of October, you will not cause other people to lose their children um, in our name. I'm much more interested in those voices than I am those clamoring for more bloodshed. And uh, of course, Israel cannot possibly agree to a two-state solution because if it did, then it would have a terrorist state, a jihadist state like the Taliban right on its border. Not really. Um, so firstly, I think that the complication of a two-state solution is Firstly, not a decision for Israel to make. Um, it's, uh, you know, pa Palestine is, uh, a, 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 obviously we've heard the British government and the US government talking about recognizing uh, a Palestinian state. You know, the, the UN resolution that created the state of Israel also uh, recognized uh, by virtue of that, the existence of a Palestinian 
state, you know, which Israel was being created on the la- some of that land. Um, the idea that Israel has any say in whether there's a Palestinian state should be laughable because actually it's not their decision to make. It's really about the international community. And of course, when we say the international community, what we're saying is uh, the United Nations, which is um, held hostage by America because of the way in which the UN was created in the post-war environment whereby, uh, you know, the big five essentially get to veto what everybody else in the world might think because, of course, some countries matter more than others. Um, And I'm sure South Africa with the history that you have uh, can see the absurdity of that. Um, I think what, what, what is much more interesting is that obviously the polls that we've had come out of the Palestinian territory support suggest that today, even in Gaza, um, that most people would rather see, uh, you know, Palestinian authority governs area than Hamas. Uh, I don't think that Hamas had been particularly popular um, on, on a number of different fronts, to be honest with you, including their governance. Um, so, you know, and plus, you know, these, these analogies that seek to compare sort of, you know, a Palestinian liberation movement, albeit one couched in Islamic language, and of course, this automatically sort of that conjures up this notion of extremism. Not all these groups are the same. The Taliban is not the same as ISIS. It's not the same as al-Qaeda, it's not the same as Hamas. These are different movements with different ideals. You know, Hamas has as its ideal clearly stated in its charter the liberation of the Palestinian territories. The Taliban has very different objectives to that. Um, In addition to which, if you look at the way that the Gaza Strip has been governed, if we can use that word, um, it doesn't look anything like uh, the sort of extremism that we have seen from the Taliban. So um, that isn't to suggest that I think, as I said before, Hamas have governed well, but I just think the analogies are just sensationless and inaccurate and unhelpful, actually, ultimately, in trying to ensure that people really understand what's going on. Um, and another terror group uh, that has uh, aligned itself with Hamas, the Houthis, uh, they are hijacking, hijacking ships in the Red Sea against uh, international law, and they are crippling the trade there. So uh, isn't the UK and America justified in bombing them? I mean, you may have heard me respond to this one on Sky already, but yeah, my view on that is that if the solution to uh, you know, a few guys in dinghies who are trying to stop a genocide happening is to bomb the people trying to stop the genocide. I don't really know where to go from there. Um, you know, the Houthis um, are, you know, a group that divide obviously support in Yemen. Um, however, I'll tell you what doesn't divide support in Yemen is their actions in support of the Palestinians. We have seen millions of people uh, take to the streets in Aden in support of what the Houthis are doing to try and stop the genocide of the Palestinians. Um, So if anything, I would say that this is probably the one issue that has managed managed to unite a lot of Yemenis who are actually quite divided on, obviously, the fact that there's a proxy war being played out in their country 
really a treaty between the United States and Iran, but of course it never is um, directly. You know, we, we get the Saudis to do our dirty work and um, Iran gets the Houthis to do theirs. So. And the Yemenis pay the consequences. Um, and, uh, well, Israel is fighting the forces of darkness that wants to take over and destroy the civilized world. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I I think that using sort of um, messianic analogies has obviously been a strategic move by uh, Israel uh, because you're obviously there referring to statements that have been made by uh, Netanyahu and others referring to Palestinians as the children of darkness and the Amaleks and these sort of biblical references. Um, to me, this is just them playing um, to a very specific audience, probably in the US, because of course, what most people don't realize is that the largest number of Zionists in the world are not actually Jewish, they're Christian Zionists. And those Christian Zionists have a sort of messianic belief in uh, you know the, the sort of return of a messiah uh, that can um, you know be sort of fed up if we all just bring on Armageddon. And what I'm going to say to that is I'm going to suggest that maybe those aren't the people that we want running things. Just maybe, just maybe those aren't the people we want in charge. Maybe we should just sort of you know let those guys sit in a quiet room to themselves for a minute. Mm. Okay, so let me take off my devil's advocate hat or perhaps my Mark Regev hat and ask yeah. you <laughs> and ask you this final question. How do you think the whole Israel-Palestine issue is going to finally play out? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? And is it a very, very long tunnel? Do you see the tide turning? Well, there's light, there's light in the tunnel thanks to South Africa, you know, and South Africans. Thank God for you guys. Thank God that you people have, you know, wielded the incredible pain that you have experienced as a nation to try and liberate others. Like, I can't... The beauty of the actions that South Africa has taken in defense of the Palestinians is almost difficult for me to put into words and I'm not one that struggles with words. I genuinely, this is not just historic, this is a, you know, in such a deeply inspiring act of international solidarity, of pushback by the global south, of bravery, genuine bravery um, in the face of so much violence uh, both physical and um, metaphorical. And I therefore do believe that South Africa is giving us all hope, uh, starting with the Palestinians, that a new dawn has to emerge, a new dawn in which the global South, which is a rising tiger in the world, the West is on the out. You know, uh, I live in the center of the former empire here in London, and I can tell you that this is very clearly somewhere where power is shifting away from and it's shifting away from here and it's moving to different parts of the world and as that shift happens i guess the key thing for me uh, you know observing is i just hope that the global south doesn't end up in new forms of imperialism where one 
you know, empire replaces another without naming any names. And I hope that instead that the Global South can find ways to unite and work together to provide the third way that Bandung offered us, you know, in the, uh, you know, uh, period of decolonization, uh, you know, that, that there was this hope that another way was possible, right? Neither East nor West, a third way, which, you know, values the, um, the issues like, you know, national sovereignty, autonomy, making decisions that are in the best interest of your people. We need that global, that voice of the global South to be heard more and more. And that's personally what keeps me hopeful. Um, will the Palestinian uh, issue be resolved tomorrow? Of course not. Do I think it will be resolved? Absolutely, because I don't think that, um, I don't believe that it's sustainable to continue seeing what we're seeing, which is every few years, mass annihilations of people, uprisings all over the world. And when you do that, you have a hardening of positions on all sides. We, in a place where those positions are currently really hardened, but in those moments, I also think you see people rise through who are carrying a voice of light. And that voice of light on the international stage has been carried by South Africa in a beautiful way. But there are also many other countries that are supporting that and who are also providing light. And I choose to believe in that. I choose to believe that there is hope. Well, I must say you really empowered listeners with your answers to counter the propaganda points of Israel that we keep hearing over and over again. Uh, Dr. Miriam Francois, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the Big Picture program. And from all of us here in South Africa, we wish you more strength and success in the wonderful work that you are doing, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wa Thank you so much for having me. Thank you once again. Well, 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 well. There you are, folks. That brings us to the end of the Big Picture Show. And this is A.B. Dauji bidding you all assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.